Before we start the show, we have a special announcement. There are some things that just aren't done, such as drinking Dom Perignon 53 above the temperature of 38 degrees, listening to the Beatles without earmuffs, or being seen in public without our What Does Vargas Do t-shirt. That's right, we've launched our own store over at redbubble.com. Just go to the website and search for Spy Hards. Grab yourself a Vargas shirt, making sure it's the right size, or you might just feel a stiffness coming on in the shoulder. Scott, I think they get the point. My bad. So keep the spy hards end up, check out the store and cam, roll the episode. Boom. Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, we have someone joining us this week, uh, but we're only going to hear half of him now and half of him later. (laughs) Which might give you a hint towards this week's film, but no. We have joining us this week it is none other than Jeff Quest, the creator of SpyWrite.com. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Um, so, I mean, before we get into the film, tell us a wee bit about yourself. You know, how did you come to make the website? What's your sort of history with spy films? Sure. So, um, I guess about ten years ago, I started, you know, kind of writing a little bit about spy fiction, and um, you know then as hobbies go fell out of doing it for a little bit and came back came back uh, a little bit stronger probably i don't know six six seven years ago and um started just you know really looking at some of the classics of spy fiction uh john le carre uh novels writing um some pieces about that doing some research um posting things about collecting because i collect spy fiction um signed spy fiction and uh it was just kind of a place to throw some of those things out there. Um, and recently I've started uh, podcasting on a few different uh, book series. So there's a spy author, Mick Heron, who um, his, he's got a, uh, his series called uh, Slow Horses is going to be adapted into a Apple TV show. And so I've been kind of going through the various books that he has written already and talking with folks about those for a podcast called Barbican Station. So that's been a lot of fun. As someone that used to work in Barbican Station, or at least next to it, it's always interesting to hear that being thrown around. <laughs> I, I'm curious, in your signed collection, what are some of the highlights? What are some of the ones that would have collectors you know, salivating? <laughs> well, it's all, it depends on what you're interested in, but um, definitely with the, the signed books, I've got you know, obviously, uh, John le Carre signed a uh, run of his American books and, and um, some signed of his UK editions. Um, I've got, you know, Eric Ambler, who's a classic author, signed some signed books of his. Um, I've tried to kind of collect all of the major, at least one book signed by all of the major spy authors that are out there. And what was the first spy book you read that really kind of set off that ting in your brain that launched this whole, you know, obsession? 
Yeah, I think for me, it was, I mean, you go way back, you know, I mean, Hardy Boys and uh, the Bobsy Twin Mysteries, you know, that kind of, you know, and then it leads to more spy stuff um, from there. But really, more recently, um, I picked up a copy of John le Carre's Smiley's People that was signed. And it kind of, that was really what kind of kicked the whole thing off. Mm, very nice. I remember listening to uh, one of your episodes on Spyberry where you were talking about your full collection of, of novels you've got that are signed. And uh, I believe a previous guest, Matthew Bradford, was there as well, talking about his books. And I think we're, what we're trying to do, actually, is just collect all of the hosts of Spybrary one by one to sort of assemble <laughs> a team here. So I, I think we've had, yeah, we've had Shane. You've got yourself now. We've got, we've had Matthew. Who else have we got left? I don't know. You might have a full collection there. You, uh-huh. you know, now, now you got to go for uh, doubles, you know? Yeah, the, the returns. <laughs> But sort of pivoting off novels into the world of spy movies, now obviously that's what we're talking about today, but any uh, spy movies that you hold uh, near and dear to your heart? Sure. Um, I tend towards more of the, you know, a little more gritty, real, real spy films. You know, I love, you know, James Bond is great and I love those too, but I think if I have to choose, it's going to be something that's a little more true to life or those true life ones like Breach, I think is a great, uh, spy movie. I love that one. Great performances in there. Um, you know, Spy Who Came In From The Cold is a classic. I, I really like uh, The Constant Gardener, although the spy connection is a little little shakier there. So those, those, those are the ones that really jumped to mind immediately. What did you think of The Little Drummer Girl? Have you seen it? I, yes, I, I didn't mind. It looked beautiful. It was filmed beautifully, I thought. It, overall, beyond that, it was you know, when you stretch things out to fill a full miniseries, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So I was a little more on the fence there, I think. And what about the film version with Diane Keaton? Have you seen that? <laughs> I haven't seen that one. I've been uh, <laughs> yeah, avoiding that one. So I say keep avoiding. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you were saying how beautiful it looks, I was like, did it? Oh, <laughs> did no. it look that great? <laughs> Credit where credit's due. The BBC adaptation is pretty good, I think. Uh, compared to the film, at least, anyway. <laughs> um, but, Cam, let's get to it. What are we talking about this week? Yeah, we are tackling 1973's The Day of the Jackal, directed by Fred Zinnemann. Let's do the letterbox.com synopsis. Now, this one's a bit of a long one, folks, so uh, grab a blanket. Let's settle in. <laughs> the Day of the Jackal. Nameless. Faceless relentlessly moving towards the date with death that would rock the world. An international assassin known as the Jackal is employed by disgruntled French generals to kill President Charles de Gaulle with a dedicated gendarme on the assassin's trail. Now, listeners will not know that we edited around me stumbling over the word a few times. If anyone knows what gendarme means, let me know. I assume it's like investigator? Yeah, that's like it's a policeman. I... I only know how to know the word from reading it <laughs> all the time but yeah why why would they use that term in the letterbox synopsis why wouldn't they just use investigator it was all a long con just to confuse me i think sure um i like the tagline on that one as well those are the days when taglines were like seven sentences long as opposed to nowadays where it has to be one simple sentence possibly three words yeah it, it's probably uh it's one of the better ones we've read but at the same time maybe a bit too long Mm. And a lot of punctuation in there. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
but let's talk about first experiences with the film before we review it. So I had never seen this film. I had heard of it, actually. It's one of the ones I'd heard of, but never got round to seeing. Uh, Jeff, what about you? I probably watched this back in high school or maybe college on a teeny little TV VHS copy. Um, but it was funny rewatching it again just now. I could definitely flash back to back watching it then, and I remembered a lot of it. So, and Cam, I had never seen it. Um, I'm pretty well versed in '70s film, but for some reason, this one always slipped through the cracks. And I had picked up a copy a while back, you know, at a thrift store. And I actually held off watching it when we launched this podcast because I thought, well, we're going to tackle this one pretty soon down the road. So, yeah, the other night was my first time. So, yeah, it was very exciting. It took us a year to get here, but uh, I am uh, I am hoping the wait was worth it, Ken. Yeah, the sad part is I actually went and saw the remake in theaters, so I'm much more well-versed on the 1997 remake. So there you have it, folks. No differences. Like identical films, I got to say. <laughs> Well, I was, ner- I, you know, I had kind of a nerve wracking moment here because I, I thought we were talking about that one. So I did all my, you know, rewatched that one like five times <gasps> just to get, you know, all set. Oh. So, <laughs> so it's, it's Bruce Willis here on out, is it then? Yes, yes, exactly. Him and his bleached platinum blonde hair and uh, scary mustaches. I, I've heard nothing but bad things about that film. And we are going to be tackling it in a few weeks' time after this one. So it'd be interesting to contrast the two. But no, we are talking about the original, The Day of the Jackal. So Cam, can you give us some backstory on who the Jackal was and how did we get here? Right. So this film was based on the Frederick Forsyth uh, 1971 novel. Um, Now, Frederick Forsyth, for those who don't know, is an English thriller writer, um, does a lot of spy fiction. Uh, He wrote actually one book called The Fourth Protocol that was turned into a 1987 film starring Michael Caine and Pierce Brosnan. We will tackle it further down the road. Now, I'm curious, Jeff, have you read much Frederick Forsyth? I've yeah, I've read a decent amount. I definitely have read The Day of the Jackal. So that's I mean, okay, go to for him. Okay, cool. Yeah. So this book um, was actually picked up by um, a producer named um, John Wolfe, who obviously produced this film, and he had the manuscript. So before the book, it actually hit shelves and it was in his office and he had a meeting with Fred Zinneman, the director. And Fred Zinneman, for those that don't know, was a really well-established director. Like he's a classic Hollywood director. He'd done movies like High Noon, From Here to Eternity, Oklahoma, And um, he had done a movie in 1966 called A Man for All Seasons that had really scored at the Academy Awards that year. It won him a Best Picture and a Best Director. And he'd taken a seven-year hiatus um, just to kind of take it easy after that film and that experience. And he was in the office and he stumbled across this manuscript and basically just inquired, you know, what is this? And he was told by John Wolfe, it's a suspense thriller. I just bought it. It will be published next month. You can't put it down. So Fred Zinneman grabbed that manuscript, read it, and immediately wanted to do this film. And he was the one that actually brought on the writer, Kenneth Ross. Now, Kenneth Ross is really interesting in that I, he has almost no film career. He's only written a like, small handful of things. And he got this job off of a movie called Brother, Son, Sister, Moon, which was a Franco Zeffirelli religious epic that may have been successful at the time, but has vanished. Um, I had never heard of this film. Had either of you ever heard of this movie? 
Nothing. Yeah, I'm getting dead silence there. Yeah, blank stares. Well, I guess we'll have to bring this team back together when we actually tackle Brother Sun, Sister Moon on the Religious Epic Cards podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, Kenneth Ross, this was his follow-up. And so he wrote this film. He would go on to also adapt the Forsyth novel, The Odessa File, to the big screen, as well as write a couple of movies for John Frankenheimer. We tackled Frankenheimer for Ronan but he did um, Black Sunday and The Fourth War for that director. Um, as for the style of the movie, for, um, Zinnemann going in wanted to bring in a documentary-like realism, um, and he had honed that style in a couple of movies he'd done called The Men from 1950 and Teresa from 51. So he very much wanted to make this look stripped down. He said he focused on all plot details, almost no character. He wanted to strip all that out and leave it just for the viewer to follow the actual events of the story, not get kind of bogged down in character fleshing out like most movies would. He wanted to have that sort of realism. Edward Fox is certainly stripped down in one scene in this film. (laughs) Oh, good call, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) And he also wanted unknown actors. And that was a bit of a, um, you know, point for the studio that they weren't necessarily in favor. They were pushing for a name. I couldn't find any of the names they wanted, but I have to imagine like in 73... Maybe like Pacino's getting thrown in there. Maybe like Dustin Hoffman. I think it. I I had heard they had th- some of the names were like Michael Caine was interested at one point, and Robert Redford was a uh, dark horse candidate for that. That is very much like the Bruce Willis school, right? Like you get Robert Redford, it's like yeah, there's our big American star. There you go. I can kind of see that. Yeah. Um. And they ended up going with Edward Fox. He was hired because he'd appeared in a movie in 1970 called The Go-Between. And he had won a British um, Oscar for supporting actor. And that had really wowed Zinnemann. So he was hired. I I don't think The Go-Between has much of a legacy. I've never seen it. Either of you, gentlemen? Yeah, it's a romantic drama. More dead air. More dead air. (laughs) More dead air. (laughs) And uh, this was the first major Anglo-French co-production which, you know, a lot of resources went into the casting. That's why it is a fairly international cast. They wanted to hire for both sides, you know, both France and British actors and really fill out that in terms of hiring and as well as behind the scenes, because you had, for example, the um, cinematographer was Jacques Tournier, who was a really well-established French cinematographer, as well as obviously a ton of British actors throughout this film. So it makes it really sort of an interesting film in terms of the vibe it gives off, where you have that sort of, duality of where it feels especially as a north american viewer you kind of get a little more of that exotic feel just because it it's sort of this meshing of cultures that you don't normally see in what we're looking at as foreign films and of course you'd be entirely confused because the people in france are speaking with very good british accents wait don't they all scott (laughs) (laughs) we we (laughs) <laughs> that's something though as a north american you get very used to in movies though it's like you're watching a world war ii film and all the germans speak in british accents <laughs> like that's the sort of thing you see in old movies whenever it's foreign it means british accent <laughs> I, i've been to i've been to france enough times to know that when i start speaking especially with a british accent they just roll their eyes and walk away most of the time that might just be me but the french generally don't seem to like the british that much yeah yeah <laughs> It's. I don't know why they always just fall back on British accents for um, any sort of like background other than North American. Do you have any idea why that is? No, it's not something that's discussed over there. I suppose it's just you know. I don't want to say that's where the language originates from, but 
maybe that's just how it's best said in English with a British accent. We maybe perhaps, yeah. perhaps we enunciate more. I don't know. Mm. And then there's also what I mean. We're not going to review the film at this point, but like one thing that always made me laugh when watching this film was. It's not just the people in France are talking with British accents. It's some of them are talking with British accents, and then some have French accents, but they're all talking English. And like, if you're going to pick one of those two, like, choose your lane on that. I never got that. Yeah, I saw some interview I think with Fred Zinnemann, and he was like, you know, yeah, I could have decided to just you know have everybody speak with speak in French, or that he's like, I'm just going to cast the people I want to cast, and we'll just go with it, and people will follow along. So, I think he was unconcerned about that. It's something that when I was watching the movie, there was points I was struggling to determine who were, like, French investigators versus British investigators. So, um, curious choice, and we'll probably dive into that a little more going forward. But, uh, the movie was a uh, hit at the box office. It brought in $16.1 million domestically. International numbers just cannot be found online. Um, It was number 16 for the year at the um, domestic box office between A Touch of Class, which was a um, Oscar uh, nominated film for Best Picture that year, and High Plains Drifter, the Clint Eastwood Western. The top three for this year, and we've tackled it in the past, but number one was The Exorcist. Number two was The Sting. Number three was American Graffiti. Also on this list, you had at number seven, Live and Let Die. Number 11, Enter the Dragon. And way down the list, so low it doesn't even have a number, the Macintosh Man. Oh. <laughs> One of my favorite films we've ever covered. Mm, yeah. Mm. And this movie was very well reviewed at the time. And there was, I think, a lot of hope it would do well at the Academy Awards that year. But it only got a single nomination for Best Editing, which it lost to The Sting. That I have some questions about, like, I love The Sting. The Sting is a fantastic entertainment. But when you look at the editing on display in this film, I don't know. This feels like a little more of an achievement to me. See, I heard something in my research that Zinnemann was sort of done with Hollywood and kind of a bit uppity about things. So maybe he just made some enemies and people didn't want to vote for his films. Possible. I mean, also, this is also more of the time period where best editing goes to best picture. Like, they would just pair them. It didn't really matter if you had the best editing, but if you were the movie that was going to win Best Picture, you'd probably win editing as well. Nowadays, it gets split a lot more. You know, I remember years like where I believe The Matrix won Best Editing, and it, believe me, it was not in the Best Picture race. Or Mad Max Fury Road wins Best Editing, and it does not win the Best Picture. So they look at editing, I think, in a different way now than they did then, where it was more like, well, clearly, if it's the Best Picture, it has the Best Editing. I also think the sting is really flashy in the way mm-hmm. it operates, right? And I think, you know, it's I, that's always been the problem with editing when it's seamless and you don't notice it is when you lose, right? Yeah, and also, of course, the sting is a heist film, which depends on so much on editing for sort of the tension that you can also understand how people would be so sucked in by the movie. But I will just say I was pretty floored by the editing of this movie. I, I think it deserves to be in that competition, at least. Well, at least I had the nomination. That's more than most of the films that year could say. Exactly. Yeah. It was, it was an honor just to be nominated. That's right. Um, and so a, a fun little side note on this one. Frederick Forsyth, who had eternal regret over the movie rights here with Day of the Jackal. He was offered £17,500 plus a small percentage of the film's profits or £20,000 and no royalties whatsoever. And he thought, 
I'm going to roll the safe dice on this one and take the 20,000 pounds. And he said he lived forever with the regret of that because he would have made a small fortune for him, he said. Did they say what the percentage was he would have taken? No, the they never film? do. Okay. I was going to try and work it out in my head. I, I, I get that. You see a lot of game shows and people get to like the final round. Like, hey, do you want to double your money and gamble it all? And I'm always at the home going, no, I'll take my 17 and go. Thank you. Um, so I, I actually would be with, uh, with Frederick on this one. Yeah, I think I probably would have done the same. You don't know how the movie could do, right? Mm. Well, and at the time he wrote the book, he was out of work. And so he, that's that's why he had the time to write it. And so I, I'm sure if somebody drops 20,000 20, on your lap, you'll take it at that point. I would have to imagine. I mean, yeah. e- even now, that's a, a year's salary for some people. So must have been a lot of money in 72, I guess. Yeah, the only thing that would have given me pause is that it is Zinneman, who's coming off of like this huge Academy Award film. That might have given me pause about royalties. But I think in most cases, if I'm like a first-time writer, early writer, and someone offers me uh, money for you know my work, I think I would just take the, the money if I didn't have a lot of background on who the filmmaker was. Well, hindsight is twenty twenty, And Cam, you and I are doing a podcast about this film 50 years on. So he's having the final laugh, I think. Sure. And that wraps me up for the behind the scenes on The Day of the Jackal, a movie that has a really long legacy, but not a lot of behind the scenes details when you actually search around online. Like, I want to thank the people at TCM for assembling several articles that were very helpful. But, you know, you go to the Wikipedia page, it's pretty blank. Not a lot out there. And you'd think there would be a lot more. Uh, Jeff, is there anything that you think Cam has missed? I think he covered the the gamut there. You know, I think um, there is on the Blu-ray um, a, a couple of interviews, um, one with uh, this author, I think, um, that I thought was very interesting. And some he had some behind, behind the scenes info for the movie that I thought was kind of kind of cool. And there's actually an interview with Zinneman that was done for French TV where they talk about a lot of the stuff that, that Cam mentioned. So, I, yeah, no, I think you hit it. Hit the highlights. Well, it looks like the jackal is blown. <laughs> um, sure. Yeah. sure, you could say that. <laughs> yeah, you, you could if you wanted to. Um, well, let's get into it, folks. We've now revisited this film, for some of us for the first time. Jeff, you're the guest. What do you think? I, I think it was great. You know, I mean, I think you can tell that Zinneman is an expert director right i mean from his past work it's it really plays on a lot of his strengths i think you know high noon um a nun story they're this kind of like procedural kind of movies where you watch this thing play out and that's exactly what day of the jackal is it's it's you know and i you know spoiler alert for me you know i i'm eager to hear what you guys think but you know is this really a spy movie, right? Mm-hmm. And and so uh, you know, it's more of like a police procedural, if you want to put it that way. So, uh, but it's it's really good in in that frame. That's an excellent question, one we'll raise. But we will say we are going to be also on Spy Hearts tackling a lot of Hitman movies because they operate under similar codes and there are similar tactics taken in the field. Also, it just extends the life of this podcast, <laughs> so <laughs> it, it works for that. Stop questioning us, Jeff. Jeez. Uh, Cam, what about you? Yeah, um, it was one that going in, I knew its long legacy. And I was really wowed by the movie. And it actually turned out very different than I expected. I wasn't as aware going in just how much of a docudrama it was. I really thought it would be a little more of a 
you know, standard dramatic narrative. And I was really blown away by it. And Scott, you and I talked about The House on 92nd Street on this podcast, a movie you and I both struggled a fair deal with in terms of a early docudrama form that just felt so creaky and outdated and just, it just really did not grab us whatsoever. Here, we're looking at one that now is also, you know, 50 years old, basically, but I think is just so effective and feels like such an incredible evolution on what 92nd Street was doing in that I was entirely immersed in this movie. And this is a two and a half hour movie that you could easily say, well, there's no characters to latch on to. This could feel really dry. And it doesn't. It's just this consistent pace. I was always interested in the investigation. Um, I may have, you know, in the first few minutes been like, oh, this, this could be a rough ride for two and a half hours. But those fears were quickly knocked aside. And it's just a masterclass from Zinnemann, a director who I've seen a lot of his work. And it feels, you know, as Jeff said, like in some ways in keeping with something like High Noon, but at the same time feels like uh, this classic director almost re, um, reimagining what he can do on screen in a way that feels at the time, I would imagine, very modern. And I was really just blown away by the direction and editing in this movie. So I'm a fan. I think for me, this one is really uh, a testament to the fact that I do watch these films twice, or at least try to. And I'm glad I did with this one, because I didn't really enjoy my first experience with the film, I have to say. Um, I, I think it, the, the spy plot, you know, spy in air quotes, thank you, Jeff, um, is, is great. <laughs> the story is great. But, you know, I, I feel like you need to be in the mood for this film. As Cam says, two and a half hours. And it is at one speed throughout. Mm -hmm. And I I was watching it the first time, like, hey, is this going to step into the next gear at any point? No, no, just long hallway shots. Okay, okay, we're not going very fast right now. Okay, this is one hour down of two and a half, right? Okay. And I struggled a wee bit. Going back into it the second time, I think my um, and my hopes maybe were, were lowered. And, and that sounds really bad, but I think I just looked at the film from a different angle and tried to take it for what it was instead of hoping it was something else. Because I'd heard all these great things about the film, and I was hoping for this like explosive spy story. And what I got was a procedural drama, you know, an evolution of the House on Ninety Second Street in all the best ways. And from that perspective, I think it was great. I think having all these different you know plots slowly weaving into each other, all the different characters. By the end, it all culminating in that one room, and there's a lot of just single room shots in this film. Um, I, you know, there's no wasted time, really. It's not like it's like it's not it's not a ploddy film. Everything is pushing the story and the narrative forward every single scene. There's nothing you could really cut out of it, I think. But um, I think you need to be in the mood for it. Well, you cite something there, Scott, that I think is very common when people go back and watch classic films that they haven't seen which is that they often have this huge reputation and you have a sense of what the movie is and they often aren't what you expect. And I've encountered this a number of times myself where it's this title that you've heard, you know, repeated all like so many times through the course of your life and you have a real sense in your head. I know exactly what this movie is. And when it doesn't deliver that at all, you're kind of thrown. So I've definitely been there. You look at three days of the condor two, two years later from this film. Mm -hmm. uh, that's another you know, top tier spy film that people reference. And that's quite propulsive. That does fly by. This isn't propulsive in the sense that, you know, you're shotgunning from, you know, shooting from one scene to the other. But it has a steady pace throughout. And it really isn't 
missing a beat. It just has its own sort of, you know, vibe it's playing with. I became convinced while watching this movie that if you were to sit on set and actually watch them shoot this thing, you'd be convinced they were making the most boring movie of all time. Like it just, it would be so one tone that you'd be like, like, what are they doing? And that's why to me, it is such an achievement of editing where when you actually see it all cut together with the rhythm it has, that's where it just completely comes alive. But you know, when if you were to imagine sitting and watching them shoot this, there's no kind of big dialogue. There's no really big characters popping on screen. Everything would feel very matter of fact and a little dull to watch actually, you know, in the flesh. Yeah, well, it's it's really, I mean, for me, I think it was a, is the bureaucracy, the slow bureaucracy going to beat this assassin who is nimble and on his own, right? And I think that's the part that's kind of exciting, right? Because everybody knows, you know, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but, you know, the government does not move fast, right? <laughs> and so, and it, that's part of the, the fun is seeing him just kind of slip through the cracks just ahead of them. Um, and that's part of what I really enjoyed about this this movie is like you you know, you're, are they going to catch him? And then you're kind of like, well, maybe he should get away with it. He's pretty good. There's a scene where they're all gathered in, you know, sort of the, the office there, all the investigators and all the um, officials basically tracking the progress. And they're like, we've lost him. And it's this course of, oh, <laughs> and then they're like, um, then they say something about like, um, he's maybe he's given up and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And they all like chime in over top of each other. And it's like, this is chorus of people saying the same thing. And it's like moments like that, it's touching on the bureaucracy in a really fun way that it's, it's sort of subtle humor. The movie never goes for any sort of jokes or anything like that, but moments like that definitely got a smile out of me. So it has its fun where it can, but it feels organic to what's happening in the movie. It's it's also interesting that Jeff, your sort of favorite kind of spy films are more the the darker, grittier stories, and I feel like this has a lot of that in it too. Although it may not be a particularly a spy film in your book, but it it you know has the bureaucracy. You think of like the Ipris file when Harry Palmer's filling in the forms, and it's just that's like ten minutes of of Ipris file is forms, and that this is a big part of this film. It's like hey, call up this station to get these uh, passes sent over. Okay, we'll get them sent over to you. Next scene. Let's send those passes over. Okay, great. We'll send them to you now. And it, that's a good chunk of this film is just bureaucracy. But it works to build that tension of will they catch him in time? Now, we all know Charles de Gaulle doesn't die that way. He, I think he dies in his bed a lot later than what happened now. Um, so it's more like how they catch him. Well, and, you know, I think the other part that's that's interesting is that um it's not just like watching this bureaucracy, but I love the seeing how something happens part of it, right? I think of some of my favorite movies like um, our Burt Lancaster movies, like The Train, mm. where you see him actually doing these things, right? You get to see him, you know, like in The Train, which is a great movie, right? He's like doing, like fixing a train, like literally. And you see some of that here where he's like, you know, putting together this rifle, um, you know, and you watch them do that and then see, see to see the actors actually doing this stuff. I love that kind of a thing where they just let it show you that stuff. It's funny you mentioned the train. It's actually the same cinematographer did this film as well as the train. So that jumps out. But yeah, I agree with you. Those sequences where he's like assembling the gun or also when he goes out into the field to shoot the melon to test it. And it's just moments of him calibrating the you know sniper scope. Um, the way he ties a piece of rope around a tree to support the gun, 
it's the sort of moments you don't get in your standard film because they don't slow down and kind of look at it methodically. It's like, how do we make this shot look cool, for example? There's nothing like flashy about the cinematography. It's all very matter of fact. But just moments like this felt like things I'd never really seen in a movie, or at least not in this sort of way. Well, and that rifle scene is great because, you know, you see him put the rifle together. He's tweaking it. He's doing that. And it's all from his point of view where he's shooting down there. And then all of a sudden they do that reverse shot of the watermelon where it just explodes. And that's where I think you really all of a sudden the stakes are raised. Right. You know, you see this is this is what we're dealing with here. And that rifle was very cool. Like talk about a really incredible design. And it gave, you know, the Jackal a lot of character just through that weapon. It gave him a unique look. And I couldn't help but wonder, we know the Bond franchise is famous for, you know, picking up on trends. The year after this movie is The Man with the Golden Gun, where you have the specialty gun that collapses into parts. He goes to the, you know, special gun seller for items. Um, coincidence? I don't know. Well, I'll put my hands up. I've not read the book. Uh, I, I'm assuming Jeff has. Does it come apart in the book? I'm talking Man with the Golden Gun here. Oh, Man with the Golden Gun. That I'm. Uh, I that I don't know. I'm not. I haven't gotten that far in my reread. Of I'm not as big a Bondy as as others. Even in depiction, though, just on screen, it feels a little coincidental. Like those scenes feel. You know, you think of that scene where Roger Moore goes to the gun salesman in Man with the Golden Gun and is pointing the specialized rifle at him. Like, all these sorts of scenes really felt coincidental coming one year later. I had not put those two things together, actually. Interesting. I love the scene that is in this movie where he goes to the gun maker, right? I mean, that's another one. And he's like, I think he is the guy that played Control in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Um, the, the guy that plays the, the rifle maker. Yeah, Cyril Cusack is the actor's name. Yeah. And that scene is great. Like he's so like, just kind of like, oh, yes, yes, I can do that. And it's just so matter of fact, the fact that this guy is making this rifle that, you know, he's got to know. I mean, this is not, you know, he's not just going out to, you know, shoot some deer in the forest here. He's gonna, <laughs> he's up to some no good, but he's like, eh, whatever. But I get to make this cool rifle. Yeah, like, I love how cold it is, that entire discussion. So there's just no emotion at all going on. He's just like, okay, yeah, sure, you need this to be lightweight, no problem. How many shots are you going to have? Oh, just one. Okay, fair enough. I'll make them explosive bullets. There was a little bit of ambiguity to how that scene ended for me, though, where the uh, jackal asked for one of the bullets, and then we cut away. And every other time he has, like, contacts, they wind up dead. So I was questioning because we see a scene later where he pulls out a bullet that's individually wrapped and then the question was was that the bullet he wanted to see earlier or did he kill that gun salesman well maybe this is the first time we referenced the book jeff does this happen in the book does he get killed in the book no so he's one of the ones that makes it through because he is does everything that the jackal tells him to right because mm -hmm. we see the uh the forger right gets killed because he tries to blackmail him um, but in the book, for sure, the, the rifle maker understands that it's just a job and he's going to keep his mouth shut. That's, that's something I actually, I wouldn't say bumped on. I think it was just an interesting quirk of the character, which is the forger trying to um, get extra money out of the jackal. Because you'd think if your industry is based on these contacts and you're working in a shadowy world, people talk to each other. They recommend these bad people to each other. So if you're trying to extort these people, they'll never recommend you to anyone else. So you're just sort of shooting yourself in the foot and he ends up you know, getting killed anyway. 
Yeah, um, I feel like he didn't do a very good job sizing up the jackal. <laughs> I would feel like one look at this guy, you'd be like, this guy means business. I am not messing with him. I'm giving him his IDs, taking my money, and catching that check. It made me giggle. He goes, oh, don't worry. We're in a really safe location. No one ever comes here. And the jackal's like, hmm, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Quack. Um, well, I think what we'll do is we'll sort of talk about some favorite things each that we enjoyed and sort of pass it round. Uh, I actually let's go with let's go Jeff first. You know, what's one of your favorite things about the film? Um, well, I guess I got to go with kind of the finale, right? I mean, it's so big, it's so epic. They filmed it at one of the the, the actual Liberation Liberation Day parade that was happening at that time. So they got to have the characters kind of like fugitive esque, you know, like where in the Harrison Ford movie they have Harrison Ford going through the. Uh, the uh, St. Patrick's Day parade and they filmed it during the actual parade. Similar thing here where they just had their actors kind of stealing some shots around real people watching all of the stuff going on. And I love those kinds of uh, moments in a film. And then just the fact that we didn't know what kind of what was coming, right? We'd seen all the little uh, hints, but we didn't really know is the Jackal's full plan until we kind of finally see it at the end. And I, I love, I love it. I love it when a plan comes together. Well, I loved as well, like his whole disguise in that sequence is, you know, he poses as a old veteran missing a leg. And I was looking at that disguise going like, how do you pull that off? How do you hide that leg? But when you see him actually go back, you know, up to his, uh, well, he breaks into a woman's apartment and goes up to the roof and um, he unstraps his leg and you see that he's in real discomfort. Like you can see that this guy is suffering to get through this experience. That again, gives it a reality that it's not like a big pumped up finale in a lot of ways. You know, you can think of the Tony Scott version of this scene where there's like the blaring, you know, maybe Hans Zimmer score and it's just the, you know, crazy cutting. Whereas here it's all played matter of fact, but it was so suspenseful in that you see him take the shot at De Gaulle and miss and he's starting to reload the gun as Michael Lonsdale's running around trying to figure everything out. And it's just like the tension is ramping up without the film amping up the tension like it's not on screen playing things up in a crazy way it's not people exploding through doors and all that sort of thing it feels like it's very deliberately paced and yet just the tension of the experience really pulls you in that's one of the interesting things i found about this film was the fact that the jackal never actually fails he actually the only reason he misses the shot is because the gold ducks which is a complete you know, accident. Otherwise, he would have been successful in his mission and shot the guy in the head. I don't think he would necessarily have got away with it because they were right outside, but he would have killed the guy. And so I think that's one of the interesting things I found out is that he got all the way to that point. You think, when are they going to cut in and stop him? Would it have been at the hotel before or anything like that? But no, the film writes it. He is up until the point where he takes the shot, and then that's when he gets, you know, spoilers, taken out. Well, I think the movie also really wants you to be invested in the Jackal character and whether he will make it or not. And I think it doesn't want to make him look inept at the end. It wants to give him that moment where you go, okay, like this guy is incredible. And it was kind of luck of the draw that they stopped him. Um, they don't want you to build all the way up as this guy, this unstoppable killer, and then show him kind of, you know, fumbling at the, uh, you know, the end goal. Yeah, usually the, I mean, he is your protagonist in the film but he's also a bad guy so usually they would put some things in where he stumbles mm -hmm. or he fails at his plan and he leaves clues for them to track him down but really it's just great detective work that 
caused him to fail, which I suppose pivots me onto to the thing I loved, which is Michael Lonsdale as LaBelle, the detective. And mm, yeah. he, not only does he look like a detective, he's constantly got bags under his eyes. <laughs> Great choice there. But he is right on the jackal's tail the whole way through. And it's through thorough detective work that he catches him in the end. And that, uh, and maybe a little bit of luck. Well, it really threw me when I looked up Michael Lonsdale's age at the time and realized he's like a year and a half older than I am. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so I'm going to assume they put some makeup on him and made him look as beat up as they could because he definitely has that weathered look throughout this movie. But what I really liked about the detective work in this was how... They made no attempt to make it look flashy or take shortcuts. It's like, okay, we need to go through passports. How many are there? Oh, over 8,000? Okay, we'll start cross-checking them now. You could definitely feel the shoe leather in this movie. Every bit of investigation, they never made it look easy. And they would also have scenes of superiors being like, look, we're really understaffed right now. Any chance we can get this done quickly? Like it felt like you were constantly struggling against the realities of these departments trying to figure these things out. And that's where a lot of the tension came from as well. And, you know, this is a movie that, Scott, you and I, when we did the Ipcris file, we uh, had the villain who's like in the library doing research. And I was saying how much I love that. This is a movie where people are doing research throughout. And it, I think, really works for the movie. I thought about you in that scene, actually. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I thought of you as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I love the bit at the end where like he's they're They're kind of like, all right, you know, you're done. Head on out. We're, we're done with you, LaBelle. You can go, go. And he's just sleeping. And he <laughs> like after being up for like, you know, whatever, two weeks straight trying to find the jackal. And he his wife is trying to wake him up um, and he's back on the case. Then I, I just I love that little bit there. The movie has fun with humor in ways that are very subtle, but it's all just works for the characters and the you know experience they're going through because it's it's reality it's bureaucracy that we all deal with in some way shape or form you know like one bit they're trying to get some reports from a different country and they're like hey they don't wake up for another eight hours you have to wait and they have to just wait and we've all been there in some way shape or form so we we laugh at it because we know it exists and you also because it's portrayed in such a vivid way in the movie you get a sense of the jackal's um, survival tactics, which is that he is so aware of how they operate that you begin to wonder, like, what is the backstory of this guy? Because he knows so much in terms of the process that's going to happen, in terms of their investigation, how he can cut it off, how what changes he needs to make at certain times. You wonder what this guy's backstory is because he just feels like he's so educated that, I don't know, is this guy like a <laughs> embittered civil servant or something? Yeah, although I think like that's also the the strength of, of the movie, right? Is that we don't get it even though we want it, right? Mm -hmm. They don't give us like a monologue where he's you know, exposing all of his secrets to um, somebody. And I think that's what makes him all that better of a villain, right? Well, it's just he's entirely anonymous at the end. They can't even determine where he came from in the first place. Yeah, uh, you can try to read into who he is, but there's really nothing there intentionally, and it makes him that much more magnetic. But then at the same time, he's entirely brutal. Yeah. He sleeps with a woman in a film uh, twice, I believe, and then on the second time, he's, he's strangling her as he kisses her, and I think then just kills her, and you know, doesn't shed a tear over the fact he's not... Uh... It's not James Bonding it maybe on that one so much. There's no quiche involved. But <laughs> yeah, he was not upset about killing people that were in his way because he's just calculated and that, that really shows for in the film. But one thing I did want to bring up, maybe a, a, a little quibble I had, was with the name Jackal. 
Yeah. Now, if you're following the, the, the concept through, they say uh, the Algerians who hire him, the OAS, to take out de Gaulle because of the whole uh, separating of the countries and giving them their freedom. They say to him, what, what should we call you? What's your code name? And he goes, hmm, how about the Jackal? But he just told them, I never want to hear from you again. So why would they have a code name for the guy? Just don't ever talk about the guy ever again. And that, that I kind of thought, that's strange. Dead air, everyone. I did it. <laughs> you broke the movie. You broke it. Yeah. Thumbs down. Does not make knockless. Disavowed. Um, I, I don't really know. You watched it twice, so I think you are more educated in answering this question than I am. I mean, I think if you go back to the 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 book, I think they give a little bit more because he is going to get this information from uh, their mole, right? And so I think that's where, and when they're talking about what's going to happen, they don't want him, he doesn't want them using his name. He wants them using a code name. So I, th- I think that's kind of where it came from. I, I, I think so too. I think it's that he has that contact in Paris and they're probably informed that the jackal will call you all. Or, or something like that. I, there's probably a reason for it. But speaking of the jackal, I did some research, and you guys might just enjoy this. So his name is found out by the British intelligence services because of the French translation. So Chacal, which is the first three letters of his first name and his, his surname of of the imaginary name. It's not even his actual name in reality. So that's crazy. Yeah, Ch- Charles uh, Calthrop. Correct. Yeah. And so I thought, I wonder if our names are secret spy names. Okay. So I I took our uh, initials, our first three letters of our first name and surname, and ran them through Google Translate and had some interesting results for you all. Okay. So, Skohar, which is me, Scott Hardy, uh, translates to absolutely nothing. (laughs) That's fair. That's actually very accurate. Yes. (laughs) I am absolutely nothing. (laughs) Worthless. Entirely. Yes. But Cam, Cam Smee, um, translates to absolutely nothing as well. Oh, well then, yeah. fair enough. But then I stumbled on gold. Jeff Quir, Jeff Quest, translates to boss in Spanish. Ooh, very good. Very good. I think you just found your spy name. You my, are boss. My Code assassin name, boss. name, yes. When I when I go on my uh, assassination uh, spree, I now I know what what to have people call me as my codename. Thank you. That's very helpful. Yeah. You've also not given it out on the airwaves for everyone to hear, so it's actually completely useless now. But... <laughs> <laughs> the jackal, you are not. Um, I guess I can take comfort in knowing my first name, full name, Cameron. Uh, means bro- uh, crooked nose, so I guess that could be my de facto name. <laughs> well, your parents really called that one early, didn't they? Yeah, no kidding, right? What's that all about? <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought the uh, naming issue with the the jackal, though. While I'd have to go back and check the tape in terms of uh, the whole need for the nickname, I thought the comedic beat at the end paid off really well, where the guy comes back to the flat, the real, um, you know, uh, Charles Calthrop. And it's like, what are you doing in my apartment? So it was also a great character reveal for the Jackal that we never knew anything about him all along. But it had a really good, you know, button on that whole joke. That's such a 70s thing too, right? I mean, like, I'm thinking of like uh, the taking of Pelham 123, you know. I mean, like, they love to do those little, like, stingers at the end of the thriller. 
Yeah, and they're always very subtle. Like, I, taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, it's funny, I actually bought that movie just this week on um, Unobstructed View, which is the Canadian distributor for boutique uh, Blu-rays and DVDs. And uh, that is a fantastic movie if people haven't seen it. We're not going to spoil the ending of that one because it's just one of those great Hollywood moments. But yeah, they're always played very subtle and yet they're incredibly memorable. Like I will remember the ending of The Jackal, even though it's played very low key. What about you, Cam? Any favorite things to shout out to? We've sort of touched on it, but it was the Jackal's ability to survive throughout this movie and that I was always a little behind him. Like a lot of the movies, when we see these, you know, hitmen or whatever, we learn their kind of code and we know what they're going to do moment to moment. It's somewhat predictable. Whereas here, you had a sense of what he needed to do, but you never, you could never predict what he was going to do, which I thought made the character really fascinating to watch. And the way he got himself out of scenarios and Scott, you touched on, you know, there's the woman he strangles and he meets in the um, hotel room. And I love his <laughs> small talk with her in the lobby about like magazines about like pig farming or pig breeding or something like that. But we see later on, he picks up a guy in a steam room and the way these scenarios play out there, you never quite know how he's going to survive, but you just know he's entirely open to anything, any means of escape, any means of disguising his identity he will pursue, which makes him that much more enigmatic as a character. But also, you know, you reference strangling the woman. You see with the guy he picks up, the guy um, sees a TV with his face on it, comes back to his apartment and the jackal's there and the TV's on and we see that he's exposed, you know, as a potential murderer. And he kills that guy as well. So it's always these sort of slow burn moments of watching him respond to potentially being caught and shifting his directions, but often at the stake of other people's lives. I think you're exactly right. And it's interesting in that he's only makes those shifts as soon as he's threatened, right? You know, he's perfectly willing to go along and, and live and let live. But as soon as he gets that threat, hits a certain level, it's like, all right he completely shifts and changes because it's all about the mission with him. I think there's that great moment where he's in the car, he's driving. He re first time he knows he's been blown. Right. And he he's driving along, he stops and he looks at the, the sign. It says on to Paris or to Italy. He, that's his chance. He can take off and, and just walk away. And he's like, no, I'm going to do this. Right. He's utterly devoted to this mission. Mm -hmm. people will do anything for two hundred fifty thousand dollars, i think at that point so he's he was willing to take that risk um but talking of the the guy he picks up in the sauna first time round, i didn't necessarily catch the whole relationship there i maybe i'm just so naive i didn't see it but like i just thought hey do you want to come out for a beer yeah sure i didn't <laughs> see anything sexy in that and then like i second time around like of course he's there to have sex with the guy it makes perfect sense yeah, well, I mean, that's Scott, that's how this podcast got, got launched was you in a steam room approaching me being like, hey, do you want to do a podcast? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'm down. <laughs> so, <laughs> And we still not had sex. Yeah, so, that's uh... right. That's right. <laughs> Slow burn relationship. But yeah, uh, no, I did cop onto it here where I figured out what was going on. But um, it's also played, it's the 1970s, right? They're playing it very subtle. And it's something, if you watch old movies, you begin to pick up much more on these scenes because they're trying to get it across in a way that's basically skirting around what a censor might take issue with in the 1970s or earlier. So, yeah, I can understand how people might be a little confused by that moment initially, but I think it pays off in a way where you understand exactly what's going on. 
one thing I will say about the jackal, the shakal, hmm. is much as he is, you know, that he's written for us to be on side with him. I do have an issue with the film and his approach to animals, and also that other spy lady. They all spies in this film seem to have this complete abandon for animals, because first of all, you see the the assistant he has in the film. I think she's sort of infiltrating one of the French ministers, I believe. And she uses a dog to distract a horse, so they start fighting each other. And this is like 1973. I'm wondering if there's animal control people on site, because that horse was pretty close to kicking that dog's head in, I have to say. That horse was not acting. My sister and I, you know, during the pandemic, we've been watching a lot of old Disney movies from the era. And it's very clear back in the day, they're like, we need this, like, dog to fight with something. Just <laughs> unleash the dog on it. <laughs> Just do it. <laughs> And she just lets them, they both just run off screen together, ch- chasing each other. Like that, that did not end well for one of those two animals, and I think it was the dog. Mm, good but, call. Like speaking of dogs, there's another dog in the film that I think gets killed off screen, which is the German Shepherd in the car that crashed. Yeah, uh, that sort of he gives that a dirty look. And then there's a lobster in the flat with the man he picked up at the sauna. He he brings home for for supper. He sees the jackal on TV, and then the jackal attacks him. You see the lobster fall to the floor, and it starts flopping around. Like, it's like, ah, I need water. So, one, two, three, four, possibly animals died in this film. Well, <laughs> or were injured. At, at least at least the labelle hopefully didn't kill those pigeons, although he was gone for a while, and so maybe they didn't get fed. So, you mm. know, who knows? Yeah, it's... A sign of the times that PETA wasn't actually having any sort of presence back in those days. And there wasn't a lot of uh, humane society um, oversight when it came to animal usage in movies. I remember watching an old uh, John Wayne Western. And it was before he was famous. So some of the B-Westerns he shot when he was quite young. And I was watching it with my dad. And there was a scene where they wanted, I guess, a horse to jump off a cliff into the into water. And it was very clear they just cut to like a horse had been held by a cable over like a lake and they just dropped it. <laughs> and it was like that horse did not sign on for that. <laughs> so, yeah, I think the jackal may have a few issues. They're not quite as bad as that poor horse. But the sort of scene when you watch it, you go, I don't think this was done particularly uh, safely. <laughs> it's so strange you mentioned a horse being thrown off of a cliff and we're talking about Edward Fox. Mm. Mm. For those who haven't seen Never Say Never Again, uh, James Bond rides a horse off of a cliff in that film, and Edward Fox plays M. That's right, yes, yes. Which which we will be getting to at some point. Yeah, sooner than later, actually. So, um, mm. that um, scene, though, I'm glad you brought that up with the female spy. We do have a spy, a honest-to-goodness <laughs> spy in this movie. Um, the way that that's set up, where she has to start a relationship with this um, married um, official, it made me laugh so hard. And that they're like, okay, his wife and you know kids are out of town. You have to work quickly. Boy, did she! And boy, did it succeed easily. Like this official was just like singing like a bird, man. Wow. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Anything and everything that she wanted to know, he was he was telling her. She snapped him like a twig. Like he was so easy to break that resolve. I mean, my god. <laughs> That's that's like Matahari levels of like control of men there. He was blowing out that sacred candle like nobody's business. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anytime to bring that candle back, I'm up for it. Yeah. But it was those little types of dramas within the movie that I thought were really effective because I was genuinely interested in all of her efforts to seduce this guy and get in with, you know, the information she needs from him. 
Um, it has these little stories it tells. We, you know, Scott, we don't know the name of this woman very well. Um, we don't know a lot about her at all, but it nonetheless really works dramatically in these little tiny capsule dramas going on throughout this movie. And there's a lot of them. Well, and she's also the one person that we get a little bit of backstory on, right? Because he's taking these photos of of a soldier that had died and burning them, um, saying she needs to like let go of all of that so she can go undercover. And so she's like one of the characters that where we get a little bit of that set up. Everybody else is a bit of a cipher when it comes to their past. That scene in particular reminded me of Matahari, funnily enough, because you have that spy master in that film who is sort of controlling Matahari and the other woman as well. I can't remember the name of, unfortunately. And, you know, talking about the, the gritty reality of being a spy. And, you know, this, this spy master in this film comes up, burns her, like, dead boyfriend's photos and things like that, burns her memories away. And she's, like, standing in the corner going, okay. Basically crying her eyes out because this is the reality. And this film deals with the reality, I think, of, of well, maybe not spycraft. Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> uh, assassin craft with a bit of spy work. And her... You know, the end of her story is not happy either, where, you know, she goes back to the flat and the official has killed himself, committed suicide and shame basically over what's happened. And then she's caught by the authorities. So, like, I don't know what kind of sentence she would get, but it would be fairly lengthy, I would think, considering what's going on here. And I don't know that she signed on for this, you know, with these sorts of stakes, but it's a pretty harsh reality for what she's facing. I'm not sure she signed on to it at all. I get the impression she's being forced, which I think actually, if you look at her story in the film, which is a, you know, a C plot at, at best, mm. is the story of, of Matahari. Yeah, it's true. And now the guy in this film, I know from a little bit of history, the, the guy who's assassinated at the beginning, which I want to get back to that scene in a little while, is actually a real life person. And that attack on Charles de Gaulle is based on a real life event. And he was the last person to be um, shot by firing squad. In France, okay. In reality, so that that's that bit is uh, true. Um, so I, obviously, her ending wouldn't have been the same as the one from Matahari, but I I think she would have got a pretty big uh, sentence for that. I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that opening sequence is really interesting in that they recreated this actual assassination attempt on De Gaulle that happened. That Forsyth was actually on site right after that because um, he was a reporter in France at the time for Reuters. And so he saw the aftermath of that assassination attempt um, that really nearly got de Gaulle. I mean, it, de Gaulle barely made it out alive of that. And so I think that was, that was the interesting part too, with this novel and movie is that it really is based in fact, but it's kind of almost like an alternative alternate history kind of a, movie right where we're seeing what might have happened otherwise if they decided to do uh to actually send an assassin after the call rather than using their own um army folks though in the oas i wonder how this movie would play to people now and that because you have tarantino for example making films that don't necessarily follow the path of history as we know it i wonder if there would be a little more even suspense to a younger viewer watching this now that it could happen because we've seen that filmmakers will take that path and will show us, you know, just through its characters, an alternate take on history. Well, or honestly, for kids nowadays, I mean, maybe they would think the Gaul really was assassinated by the Jackal, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it is in that documentary style in that you believe that this is what really happened kind of a thing. So 
maybe there's a generation now that will grow up thinking that he really did just miss getting a shot. Wait, are you saying there are you saying there's a generation of young people now that don't know about Charles de Gaulle? <laughs> <laughs> Unless there's you know twenty second TikTok videos about Charles de Gaulle, I doubt they're paying much attention to him. Well, the the crazy thing about Charles de Gaulle is that you know he was the one that came into Paris to liberate Paris at the end of World War II, and actually did survive another assassination attempt when that happened in forty four. He was walking. Um, down there, the main road there in like this parade and he went into Notre Dame and there was sniper fire and machine gun fire at him. You can actually hear the reporter on scene um, reporting this and you can hear the the machine gun firefighting and he walks in down the center of Notre Dame with snipers firing at him from up in, in the, uh, the upper balcony areas. It's kind of wild. And so that's why I think I'm sure for folks in France, this felt really real because they had lived through a lot of that. I've, I've been in that cathedral and I would not want to be shot at in there. It's surprisingly small. Now, I had a question for you, Jeff. Um, as someone who's read a lot of spy fiction, if you've picked up much influence of the Jackal character in literature going forward, because I know like the Ludlum um, Bourne novels had the Carlos the Jackal villain. Is he tied? Like, would you say that there's uh, heavy shades of the Edward Fox character there? Like, has did because I know that um, the the novel Day of the Jackal was a huge phenomenon. Has that sort of portrayal of assassins carried forward? Well, interestingly, like Carlos the Jackal got his name because of that book, because they found Day of the Jackal in one of the apartments that he was like that they burst in on and found that. So that's really funny. But I think you're you're right in that that idea of the ruthless assassin really was cemented in that in coming out of uh, the novel, The Day of the Jackal. And I think it's, yeah, hugely influential on the way every other novelist's approaches some sort of assassination plot right i think every assassin now is this ruthless cold person right and i think that's very much coming out of day of the jackal because we didn't see that's like now the uh, stereotype right of what an assassin is Mm -hmm. yeah the only thing i think that's changed over time that i really notice is that nowadays whenever you get a lot of assassin films they always have to talk about their code there's always this elaborate code that they will not break, that they always break within the course of the movie. And that's something that the Jackal here does not have. We don't have any sense of a moral code that he follows or rules that he set for himself. That's what makes him scary is that he has none of those things. But um, or, or we don't hear about them, right? I mean, I think that's the other thing is like you don't know what this guy is thinking. And, and so because of that, you're not quite sure which way he's going to go. Mm, good point. Cam, are you saying that the Jackal would turn up at the Continental from the John Wick universe and yeah, toss a coin at the desk and get a free room? Should they bring the Jackal into John Wick? That would be pretty cool, actually. I'm not even joking. I think that would be genuinely cool if they brought a character like that in. Sure. I mean, he's dead, but sure. Yeah. I'll, you know, it's a whole other film universe. Why not? <laughs> yeah, sure. We're going to cover the John Wicks at some point, so that'll give us something to talk about for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is there like magical currency that he's using as well? And, and like, yeah, codes that you can't shoot each other in certain buildings and stuff like that. Mm. Strange, strange world, these assassins. Um, the only other thing I want to talk about, which maybe sort of reveals a little bit of our behind the scenes, uh, Cam, which is the, the first scene we spoke about, the the, uh, the firing squad. Yeah. Um, now, 
Cam and I were talking before Jeff joined the conversation about that scene, and we we write notes as we watch these films, and it turns out one of our first notes was exactly the same. Yes. Do you want to reveal it, Scott? Because you've taken the extra footsteps here to realize this, so go ahead. Okay, so uh, for Jeff's benefit, we'll we'll sort of play it out there. So you have the firing squad. Now, just before the firing squad, this person says, oh, don't worry. I'm not worried about this whole thing because uh, no Frenchman will ever raise his, his gun against me. And then it's like quick cut to the firing squad, raising the gun and then shooting the guy. And uh, in my notes, I write, guy gets shot, cue curb your enthusiasm theme. Yes. Uh, and, and, and yeah, and then Canberra, exactly the same thing as me, independently. Yeah. Mine just, yeah, it just says um, execution, curb. <laughs> so, and, and curb is underlined. <laughs> Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I've actually created this scene and we will be releasing the video for it. Yes, that's right. And yeah. it's as funny as I thought it would be. Uh, it, you really delivered here, Scott. It'll be on our YouTube channel and we'll post links to it this week, I'm sure. Excellent. Um, one thing that kind of didn't work for me in some ways was the Jackal's violence on screen. Sometimes I think it's really effective. I think the best usage is the guy from the steam room, when he finds out the way the Jackal just kind of, you know, basically stalks him around a corner and we get the sense something horrible has happened. But there's other scenes, like we talk about the strangling of the woman, like he strangles this woman in like a second and a half. Um, there's also the scene with the guy he who's trying to blackmail him for the IDs where I'm not even clear on how he killed this man. It seemed like with two punches or something. Exactly. I would have preferred, yeah, I would have preferred that they'd maybe kept it more elusive in terms of what we see like just have scenes where he's doing something off screen or just cut to him walking away cleaning off his shoes or something which i've seen in movies before later so this could have beat it to beat those movies to that those types of depictions were you know i had to suspend my disbelief there a little more i thought as i said the steam room guy and even the older woman later on worked but some of them were hit or miss Definitely that first one, I was kind of wondering, was, is he dead? Because like then, but you find you don't know until he finally throws him in this chest and you see his eyes and like, OK, he is dead. But yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense how he killed him that time, for sure. I didn't necessarily write that down, but I did make notes of both of those killings and sort of put question marks next to it. So for the for the forger, I wrote down that guy's got one hell of a punch. <laughs> Because it's like a punch to the gut, isn't it? And then maybe yeah. a punch to the head? Like a punch to the throat or something, I think. Right? Maybe. like it, it might knock you out, but it certainly wouldn't kill you, as far as I'm aware. Not that I'm a martial artist or anything like that. And we don't know his backstory. Maybe he is a trained killer that can kill you in one punch. With one finger. Well, yeah. Mm. Is that Remo Williams style? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Don't cross that universe <laughs> over. I do not want to see that film. And then for the the lady he kills in the hotel, you know, he's he's literally kissing her as he chokes her out. Now, you see her hand on his shoulder and the hand is sort of lovingly sort of caressing his arm and then just flops dead. Mm-hmm. There's no point where she goes, oh, no, this is a bit tight. Oh, please stop. Please stop. Where she like maybe grabs his arm or something. It's just you know, lovingly embraced and then just flops dead. So that that did bump me too. Yeah, because if it's a strangulation, it's going to take a lot longer. And we've seen a lot of movies do that very well where you have these protracted sequences that are really rough to watch, right? Like, And I'm not saying I necessarily need to see that level of ugliness in this movie, but it's a reality that's sort of absent from those moments. Or if he's like breaking your neck, you would hear a sound which you also don't hear here. So they kind of go somewhere down the middle and it just didn't quite work for me. 
You know, one of the things that really bothered me about the Jackal was how he managed to fit all those ascots in his luggage that he was carting around. Because <laughs> yeah, he really had a lot of I, I kept waiting, you know, he's showing his luggage to the, the guy at the, the border. I was just like, it should just be scarves, right? You should see Scott pack for Vegas. Same thing. <laughs> Nothing else. Unlimited yeah, ascots. I, think this, <laughs> I have a suitcase of ascots. This is where Fred from Scooby Doo kind of got his uh, start. I think maybe is that is that you know he is blonde. Fred, maybe maybe oh. you know is this is this some sort of Scooby Doo crossover thing going on here? The dark history of Fred from Scooby Doo. There's another movie. <laughs> yeah, you've got like Bond suitcase that has you know. Foie gras, caviar, and champagne. So we're saying the jackal suitcase is what ascots and anything else? Fake passports and ascots. I think that's all an assassin needs, right? <laughs> yeah. But that does bring me on to actually a, a funny question about passports. And um, <clears throat> going back earlier in our episodes, I think it's actually the born identity, something we referenced earlier. Uh, Cam has a Canadian passport pop up on screen with the name Paul K. Or is it? Is that right, Cam? Yeah, it's Paul K. Yeah. Okay. So he has a few, uh, the Jackal has a few pseudonyms in this film on different passports. Are they any worse than Paul K or does that still hold the record for worst name? There's nothing worse than Paul K. I mean, I get it. It's supposed to be nondescript, but Jason Bourne is an awesome name. Paul K is not. Any suggestions uh, on like a worst name you, you've heard in your, your spy reading there, Jeff? Ooh, geez. I don't know. I'm trying to think now. I, You might have stumped me on that one. I would have to imagine more often than not, it's very nondescript, right? Like John Smith type names. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. It's it's nothing's leaping out as at me and as as really bad fake names. Remo Williams was no winner. <laughs> yeah, on, on many levels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Fred Ward. Um. Well, then back to this film. I haven't really brought up anything I didn't particularly like. No, nothing really springs to mind. I might. I usually write a couple of things that. Uh, to me, there's nothing major about this film that I could really throw at it, except I maybe didn't enjoy it the first time round. And saying that you need to necessarily be in the mood for it, I think mm. it's a film you do have to focus on. It's not something you can have like a passive watch. I think you, there's definitely a lot to be gained from paying attention in this film. I would have loved to have seen it in theaters because I think it's a movie that has a very deliberate pace. And when you sit in your living room, your phone's going off. If you've got kids, if you've got animals, there's sounds around you. Whereas had you been in the theater, which I haven't had that experience, obviously, with this movie, I think it would be very immersive and you would get really sucked into watching it. So hopefully one day there's a screening somewhere around here in Vancouver. I can attend it, but uh, not yet. That will be the day mm. of the jackal. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the day of the absolute nothing. <laughs> um, Jeff, anything quibble wise and he dislikes about the film um no you know it's interesting watching some of the special features one of the quibbles that folks had for the movie at the time was that torture scene that we get at the beginning right because they pull in one of the oas guys to try and figure out what's going on and it's a pretty brutal i mean we haven't talked about it but that scene is pretty brutal and you know the fact that these um the french police are just kind of blase about the whole thing right they're just kind of listening in and transcribing it and all of that and that got some pushback um to zinnemann about that and I, his response was well that's the whole point right i mean we're i'm showing you how terrible this is and if you 
like it, that's maybe a problem for you. <laughs> so that scream on the audio they got was really good because it's obviously left to the suggestion as to what's going on. But when you hear that played back, you have a very visceral reaction to it. It's more effective than if they'd actually shown much. This film revels in the concept of how the sausage is made. Mm -hmm. I mean, they should rename it the day of the sausage or the day the sausage was made or something like that. (laughs) I don't think it does as well at the box office with that title. (laughs) It's a whole other film, probably set in the steam room if it's called the day of the sausage. Sure, sure. Yeah, but... um, no, it, it revels in that whole how this is made thing. So seeing the nitty gritty and seeing this guy get tortured to potentially the end of his life or you know a bad injury is all part of it, really, I think. Yeah, and we've seen depictions like this. You know, I think of the, there was like a torture scene in um, The Little Drummer Girl. And like that one was nowhere near as effective as, you know, what we get here with just an audio cue. So I know we're going to have some more sequences along these lines in the fairly near off future. And I'm interested to see just in terms of how well they compare to this one in terms of impact. Now, Jeff, before we wrap up, I did have a question because you're the only person here that's read the book. How does this compare to the book? Is it a good you know, translation from book to film? Maybe unlike some other things we've mentioned, like Little Drummer Girl? Yeah, I'd say it's very true to the book. I mean, the screenwriter basically just it's like put managed to somehow put the book on screen, right? In a way that's pretty rare in novel to film adaptions, I think. Um most of the time because they're completely different mediums, right? Um but I think the thing that let it happen was that the book is written in a very newsy kind of documentary style that lent it to an adaption for film more so than maybe some other books where you get all of that interior thoughts of a character and how do you put that on screen how do you show that stuff whereas this was more of this happens and then this happens and then this happens in the novel and that played very well to put it up on on screen do they give any sort of physical description of the jackal in the novel um, just the kind of, yeah, I mean, he's blonde. I mean, it's, it's all from the point of view of the, uh, the police, I think is, is really where you're getting that. And so you get a little bit more as they learn more and get pictures of them and things like that. So, but the, um, Edward Fox casting feels pretty on point. Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. I mean, one of the things for me, I almost wish that the film was, uh, had pulled back on him a little bit more. I, the times that he was talking, I was like, I almost want him to be a little more silent because he's a little scarier that way, um, mm-hmm. which I think you got a little bit more in the, in the novel. You wanted less talk about pig farming. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, well, if you're going to go, you more, more of that. Oh, double down. <laughs> yes. We're back to sausages again here as well. If we're talking about pigs. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's the circle is complete. I love that. Um, before we move on to final thoughts, uh, Jeff, jumping off of the book question, and you know, don't let this influence the knock list later on, but comparing the book and the film, what would you say is probably the best version of this story out there? If you were going to say people, you know, read Day of the Jackal or watch Day of the Jackal, what would you recommend out of the two? Gosh, I mean, I think the book is a classic and it really did change things for, you know, the, the spy genre, the, the thriller genre. And, and it's just, it's really well done. I, it gives you a little bit of history that maybe you wouldn't have been aware of otherwise with 
de Gaulle and the OAS and these assassination attempts. It's it's really it's fast. I mean, it's the the novel and the film, I think you get that kind of slow start, right, where you're just getting things laid out. And then as Lavelle comes into it, that's when it really picks up because it's a chase. You know, you're they're back and forth. Is he going to get away or are they going to catch him? And I think that's where it really picks up. Um, And in the novel, it really does accelerate. Um, In the film, I think there's a little bit more of that measured pace that uh, had been mentioned before. I would also imagine the book fills in more of the details that might fly over your head in the movie, especially when we're talking about accents blending together. I don't want to push you, Jeff, but you didn't give me an answer on that question, (laughs) book or film. (laughs) Hedging my bets, yes. Um, I'd say, you know, I'm I'm a book guy. I'd say read the book first, then watch the movie. Um, But if you only have time for the movie, you're not going to go wrong, you know, by watching this film. Or, or perhaps the ultimate version is just watch the 90s The Jackal. Well, that I, you didn't offer that as an option, but obviously mm. that is the thing to do. You want to see some Jack Black and missiles and Bruce Willis in terrible costumes. Jack Black's in it and there's missiles? Oh, well, spo- spoiler alert. Oh, Scott, you have no idea. Yeah, you have no idea what you're in store for. How far are we away from this film? Like, it sounds insane. Uh, I guess two months. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I guess two months indeed. All right. Well, okay. Then I think we'll throw it out to to final thoughts. Jeff, any any sort of final questions about the film? Yeah. Well, I just was going to ask the two of you: Was there a music score to this film that you recall? Because I was at a certain point. I know there's long stretches where there is no music for sure. So there is a composer on the movie, Georges uh, Delarue, but and he worked on Twins. Um, platoon so he's fairly notable but oh boy there's no score right now coming to mind and i don't know if that's it because it's a little bit of an intentional wallpaper score where it's just to kind of carry the rhythm of the scene but it's not there to be you know the star wars theme where you're going to walk out memorized you know in your mind playing that music over and over again so that may just be the case it definitely did not jump out at me at all yeah, I mean, I think, and to interestingly, I think almost you could watch this movie as like a silent movie, right? Because so much of it is there's long stretches of just silence where you're watching these folks do this stuff. And I, I'd be curious if you could turn the sound off and still follow what's going on. I think you probably would be able to. Isn't that something, though, with like old directors like Cinnamon? Uh, you know, you go back to the classic age, they were such strong visual stylists. And they'd grown up watching silent films and studied silent films that they could really pull all that off. That's something that's lost on, I think, newer generations of filmmakers where a lot of the time it's over the shoulder, you know, dialogue scenes and a lot of exposition. To to answer your question, Jeff, I did notice a few bits and bobs. There's definitely a sort of marching beat at the beginning when they're doing that Michael Lonsdale narration about the failed assassination attempt, that's definitely there because I, I noted it down. It's um, My first note was it shows how music can build tension. Mm. And so that's there because you've got that whole... There's no talking as as the as Charles de Gaulle is slowly going towards his uh, potentially assassination. And so that's there. But after that, I think there's a bit of music when he goes to the sauna, which I think, unfortunately, is a bit of, sort of cheesy music to sort of say, hey, this is, a, this is one of those saunas, guys. Wink, wink. Uh, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate but yeah that's all that springs to mind okay yeah it definitely does not jump out at me much but that doesn't mean it's a bad score just that it probably works within the confines of the movie 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think what whatever they did worked because, you know, I think it, it was it was effective, you know, and that's the important part. So mm -hmm. whenever I talk about scores, it's either basically if I notice it, it's either one of two things. It's really bad, like, say, Goldeneye, or it's really, really good. Uh, other Bond films, just off the top of my head, you can name quite a few. Or or gotcha. Or or gotcha. Of course, gotcha. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. But this one didn't really jump out to me too much, which might just mean it's serviceable. It just mm -hmm. carries it around, and it's just atmosphere in certain scenes. Yeah, and that would make sense for the movie. There's nothing in this movie that's trying to overpower another element of the movie. It's all just played in a very realistic fashion. So a trumped up score wouldn't make any sense. Cam, do you have any final thoughts? Um, I had a couple little notes I had. Um, the jackal going undercover as a school teacher on holiday reminded me of Quantum of Solace, where uh, Bond and Strawberry Fields check in as teachers um, on holiday who I think had won the lottery. I think that was the gist of that scene, but that popped out to me. Um, there's also the car crash that the jackal's in. And we talked about animals being put into harm. That car crash did not look safe to me. So props to them for pulling that off because it was the type of car accident that I said, wow, like that looks real to me when I saw it happen. It didn't look like a staged car accident. That was two stunt drivers with a lot of balls, I think. Yeah, 1970s, man. It was a wild time. And just lastly, I just want to get the name Ralph Kemplin out there. He was the editor on this film. And I really think he's one of the superstars of the movie. And we hadn't named him so far, but he had worked in the past on um, A Man for All Seasons, The Omen, African Queen, and notably Scott's favorite movie of all time, Oliver. <laughs> why, why is it my favorite film of all time, Cam? <laughs> because you like to dress up like the Bobbies in that movie and do laps around the block. <laughs> I'm wearing that costume right now. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Actually, just, just going back to your little talk about um, the Jackal as a school teacher. When I was watching that, that those couple of scenes where he's you know he's got jet black hair and stuff, he reminded me a lot of Christian Bale in American Psycho. Oh, okay, yeah, right. Just that look, the sort of suit and the slick black hair and the dead eyes, like a doll's eyes. Hmm. Um, that that just jumped out at me. I thought it was worth mentioning. Not as much Huey Lewis music though. No, no, that scene. Uh, that, I'm not sure the Jackal would be doing that sort of assassination. <laughs> sequel yeah yeah of course has christian bale ever played an assassin because man i could see that i could see that in the, the remake of uh day of the jackal i could see him in that role i don't think he has he's played a lot of like bad dudes but i don't think he's ever played you know as defined an assassin well i know when they were casting this they wanted to get an unknown and that's mm. why we ended up with edward fox and i think he's great in this film we haven't really spoken much about him but i think he's the best thing in this film personally um but if we were going to recast it now, who who is the Jackal? Oh, like in 2021, who is the nondescript actor that's going to fill this type of character? I mean... Because this story could, could go now. It, it's easily translatable to now. Bruce Willis. <laughs> <laughs> the Jackal with a vengeance. It's tough because I think you want to play it with someone who's relatively unknown in which case we can't guess this it's going to be an actor that's someone who's popped up in like one movie or something like that and maybe gotten a little bit of notice but it's the type of character i wonder if say like andrew garfield could do especially in a couple more years when he looks a little bit older i think he has that sort of nondescript look i could see him pulling something like this off 
Yeah, I, I think for me, I, I agree. It's hard to like kind of cast an unknown, but I think the the look of the modern actors nowadays, I think, plays against mm. the jackal, right? I mean, you know, the, the the young unknown actors that you have nowadays look more like, you know, models than an Edward Fox kind of guy. So um, I think that's the tricky part for me. And they said that the reason they cast Edward Fox was that he looked both like high class and low class at the same time, which made him seem like someone who could blend into any social situation. So then you have to ask yourself, like, what kind of actor looks like that? Because they've all got their teeth capped like models nowadays, like they don't look like normal people. So, I mean, that (laughs) we haven't touched on the Bruce Willis movie yet. We'll be reviewing that soon. But like, that's something like Bruce Willis does not look like an everyman. And uh, even though he played the ultimate everyman in Die Hard, at a certain point, Bruce Willis did not look like an everyman. And um, I don't know that you could cast many people outside of finding just an unknown, you know, who just doesn't have that Hollywood look yet. Yeah, that's where you'd have to go into theater, I think, and and look for a theater actor that you could kind of put cast in a movie, because I think that's where you can find some folks that don't necessarily slot into that typical kind of Hollywood look. Well, I think of like Mark Rylance, an actor we're going to touch on fairly soon in the future. Um, That's an actor they pulled out of theater who looks much more of like an everyman type. Someone like that would be great. If Universal Pictures are looking for someone with wonky teeth and and not particularly attractive, I'm around if they need me. Your schedule's (laughs) open, huh? Wide open. I'm doing a spy movie podcast. I'm not doing much. I would watch that movie <laughs> alone. <laughs> there's, a, there's an image out there of Cam sitting in a cinema by himself waving at someone taking a picture of him. And that image is now in my head and will be on our social media now thanks to this. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, they're, not, they're not coming to see you perform by yourself. It's just you've gone to the cinema by yourself, by yourself, you complete loner. Yeah. Correct. Um I have one note, uh, and and I think we've covered the rest of my final thoughts, and that is going all the way back to the intro and the Michael Lonsdale narration. At one point, he's talking about the assassination attempt on Charles de Gaulle, and he says, they fired 140 shots, and there were seven near misses. And I just wrote down, yep, that uh, pretty much describes my dating life there. This just took a sad turn. <laughs> it's getting real dark. It's, you know, I, and I like the dark and gritty movies, but wow, we're really going dark now. Jeff is truly seeing how the spy hard sausage is made. Mm. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I think on that pork filled note, uh, let's get to it. Oh, my God. <laughs> it kind of works, man. <laughs> knock list time now can we have a guest run us through the knock list yes the knock list is the need to see official classics of spy hards it's the tortured acronym that basically is the list of all-time great spy films um we're uh, i think uh, a fairly open list we've got movies like three days of the condor as scott referenced earlier but we've also got the shersha ronan movie uh, hannah which is a maybe unconventional choice in there so that is the knock list so the question is, is, you know, the day of the Jackal making the knock list. Jeff, you're our guest. You get the first vote. Oh, wow. Um, well, before we do that, I got to ask you guys, because I know you're Star Trek fans. How does this rank up against the Star Trek six assassination film? You know, would you would you 
put this one ahead of uh, Star Trek Six or, or not? I had real thoughts about that film, especially on the uh, the bit right at the end where he's looking down the scope and and uh, what's the name of that actor? He plays like Red Foreman in in Seventy Show. Oh, Kurtwood Smith. Kurtwood Smith, who comes back as Anorax and Voyager. Uh, yeah, I had real visions of that scene, actually. There was just no uh, Kirk diving across the stage to <laughs> to rescue Charles de Gaulle. <laughs> that would have been something. That would have been great. Um, yeah, that actually is a good call. And I did a panel in Vegas a couple of years ago about film influences on Star Trek. We didn't touch on Star Trek movies, but you can't help but wonder a scene like that if there was a certain amount of inspiration. Nicholas Meyer directed that film and pretty classically trained guy in terms of his influences so i wouldn't rule it out and we've had him on the show and didn't even ask him about it so mm, yeah there you go well it, it was an assassin movie not a spy movie cam so why did why would we ask him <laughs> <laughs> um but no back back to it yeah yes or no you keep dodging my questions jeff and i will find you I know. Well, and now I'm, I guess I, you know, if we're allowed to put an assassination film on the knock list, you know, I, we never really, you know, you kind of, you dodged my question about whether it's a spy movie or not. So, you know, I'll, I'll fill the question if you want. Yeah. I'll take it what, what, what do you, what do you, what do you, what's your uh, guideline on there? If it's, if it's a film we're covering, it's able to get on the knock list. So the question then becomes more of a, what are we covering question? And because this has, uh, you know, shades of going undercover, espionage, false identities, espionage, I would put this as like a spy adjacent film. I think if you said, you know, Three Days of the Condor, North by Northwest and The Day of the Jackal as a triple bill of spy films, I don't think people would turn up to cinema and be like, well, The Jackal's not a spy film. They would probably just watch all three and enjoy them. Not saying we're all going to say yes, but you get my point. All right. Well, taking that under advisement then... Um, I'd say, yeah, I, it's, it's a classic. You can't go wrong watching it. It's, it's really, it's just a, uh, masterclass in old school direction too. I think Fred Zinneman is like, I mean, you look at his, the list of movies that he has directed and it's like you, first off, you can't believe the range because there are completely different types of films and, he put it all in this film to really make it shine. So I think uh, it's got to be on there. Okay. We've got one yes. This is the pivotal one now. This is a three-way vote this week. Cam, yay or nay? I'm a yay on this one. Uh, this movie, I really just got so sucked into it. And I think it would play really well to anyone interested in this type of film. I don't know that necessarily I would show a docudrama like this to every single human being but i think people who are into these sort of cold clinical looks at the life of an assassin or the work of an assassin and investigations like this would be blown away by this movie and um you know i think there's a strong enough espionage element like i don't really question this one for the knock list at all and i think there will be some in the future where i may be a little more like i don't know that this necessarily i feel great about this movie i really do feel good about having it on the list and it's one i think people really need to check out okay i won't belabor the point uh my vote is useless but i am going to say yes with a asterisk next to it because i think you need to be in the mood to watch this film i do agree with that yeah i think you're in the wrong setting you can really just disengage from it completely and i did the first time i, I admit i was looking at my phone from time to time i think as you said earlier camp seeing it in the theaters would probably be the best bet for this film 
So many of those 70s movies are the ones that are really deliberate. Scott, you and I are big fans of Star Trek The Motion Picture. That is a movie is actually really tough to watch at home. It's a movie when you see it on the big screen, you are blown away by it. And recently we talked about Thunderball. That was my experience watching Thunderball in the theater was being just completely bowled over by how immersive the underwater elements were. And that's something people complain about with the home viewing a lot. So there's certain movies that were really meant for cinema. And, you know, I think this is a really great case of that. Well, and he, you know, Zinneman likes those wide shots, you know, watching that on your phone, probably not going to have the same effect as uh, on the big screen. I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, that's how I watched it every time was on my phone, but it was an old rotary phone I had. <laughs> so it was very difficult to set up. <laughs> uh, well, there you go, folks. Three yeses. Well, two and a half, perhaps. And it looks like the Day of the Jackal is making the knock list. Well, and I can't wait to hear when the Jackal makes the knock list. That's going to be really <laughs> that that will be a day. From the sounds of it, I think if that makes the knock list, we might lose all credibility. <laughs> Not that we had much to begin with. <laughs> it's uh, I think we've really done a good job hyping that episode of the podcast because the Jackal, there's going to be a lot to talk about. There's a lot of people that like listen to this and then watch the film for next week, which we'll introduce in a minute. And they will watch it perhaps for the first time before listening to our episode. And, I, and by the way, I love it when you guys do that. Thank you so much for joining us as we watch these films week to week. And as I hadn't seen The Jackal, I hadn't seen this film yet either. So I think for a lot of people, it will be their first experience watching whatever this Bruce Willis film is. And you two keep like like laughing when I mentioned the film. So there's a secret that you guys have that I don't have and the listeners don't necessarily have. So I can't wait to share it. We haven't even talked about the best part of the movie, it, it, the other co-star. So, I mean, that's even even better. So you've got a lot, lot to enjoy, a lot to look forward to. A lot of great accent work. Oh, so much. <laughs> I'm so worried. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Oh, dear. <laughs> wow. There you go, folks. Uh, I'm sure you can't wait the, the eight weeks until we get there. But in the meantime, The Day of the Jackal is making a knock list. And as such, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Jeff, it leads me to say thank you so much for joining us this week. Oh, thanks for having me. This was so much fun. Really great. We're glad to have you on board. And, you know, you were the guy who read the book before we did it. So you've been our master of both literary and theatrical releases. So thank you for that. Um, where can the people hear more from you? Sure. So um, you can go to spywrite.com. That's right with a W um, and find uh, stuff there. You can go to barbicanstation.com. That'll take you to the podcast that I do there. I also do another podcast on the Nero Wolf book series. So like the wolf.com, you can go there and I pop up doing uh, reviews of TV shows that are spy related with Matthew Bradford on Spybrary. So you can find find me there as well. So I'm all over the place. Just like any good spy. Just like any good spy. Anywhere and everywhere. Uh, we'll, of course, have links in the show notes to all those websites and, and where they can find you on Spybrary as well. And, you know, I think now I've completed the Infinity Gauntlet of, of Spybrary. I'm quite quite proud of that. Put it on the <laughs> shelf. File it away. There you go. You knocked it out. There you go. So, Jeff, thank you again for joining us. And we'll, of course, link to all those in the show notes. Cam, what have we got coming up next week? I sort of teased it earlier. We are going to tackle 2015's Bridge of Spies, directed by Steven Spielberg. 
and starring Tom Hanks and Mark Rylance. Yeah, uh, this is looking to be quite a big week as well. Uh, last few weeks have been quite big for guests. So, Jeff, you joined us. Next week, we've got uh, the team from Cold War Conversations coming over to talk to us about Bridge of Spies. Now, that'll be great. And also, we will have a Spy Master interview at the end of the week with Matt Charman, who wrote the film and was nominated for an Oscar for it. That's great. Mm, yeah, it's going to be a really exciting interview, so I'm looking forward to it. So there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Bridge of Spies and join us next week. We are, of course, a proud member of QTT and Podbreed Podcast Networks, and you can find out more about them on their respective websites. Don't forget to check out the Knocklist on letterbox.com slash spyhards and follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, if the jackal wasn't Calthrop, then who the hell was he? Mm-hmm.